haven't met, my name's Terry Smith. I'm the lead pastor here at the Life Christian Church. I wanna uh, teach for a little while here. I'll start by just uh, mentioning that last week, Sharon and I were invited to travel with a handful of other pastors and leaders to learn about the amazing work done at Short Creek Dream Center, which serves people in the border cities of Colorado City, Colorado, I'm pardon me, Arizona, and Hilldale, Utah. The reason that there's a Dream Center in this otherwise fairly desolate place is because the infamous polygamist Warren Jeffs ran a self-made and terribly abusive religious cult there for many years. In fact, it goes on. In fact, my understanding is that he's still leading this cult, albeit from prison, where he's serving a life sentence plus 20 years for sexually abusing one of his 12-year-old brides. The Short Creek Dream Center came into being when one of Jeff's 80 or so wives uh, escaped his control and subsequently sued to obtain ownership of the 29-bedroom compound where Jeff's lived and from which he ran his cult. She turned this compound over to Dream City Church in Phoenix, the church that launched the, the world-famous L.A. Dream Center and spawned a movement of some 200 Dream Centers around the world. The leadership of Dream City Church was deeply moved by the plight of the victims of this cult and at great sacrifice and great expense, they have stood up the uh, Short Creek Dream Center. Warren Jeffs controlled both Hilldale and Colorado City, which together are referred to by the locals at, as Short Creek. And at one time, this, this little uh, city had a population of some 14,000 people, most all of whom were a part of the cult. And Jeffs had total control over everything. Law enforcement, such as it was, which enforced basically his religious rules, um, the, the town government, everything. Jeffs decided who married whom, who raised, those who raised the, the children that were born out of the marriages, what jobs were filled by whom, where a person lived, how much someone got to eat, and so on. It's just difficult to comprehend the damage done over many years in this community where each man was married, required to be married, to multiple women or girls, each of whom was expected to produce a child a year. I talked with one guy who had escaped from the cult who now works with the Dream Center, who has, if I recall correctly, 55 siblings only four or five of whom will speak to him now because he left the cult. There are so many sad stories about the abuse heaped on these women and children by an evil man and his followers. But there's also now a, an accumulation of wonderful stories um, because the Dream Center is rescuing victims and bringing hope and healing and counseling and job training and food and so on. Most importantly, they're sharing the true gospel, the good news about Jesus with these broken people in contrast to the perverted non-gospel that they've heard. The saddest thing for me in all that I've just said is that this has happened under the name of religion. 
God's wrath must be especially stored up for people who make up their own religion to carry out evil. Jeff's was, and again, I believe still is, the president, prophet, seer, and revelator of the fundamentalist church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, an extremist Mormon sect. His religion is a man-made religion. The religious abuse manifest in all kind of ways. Their motto sounded, sounds innocuous enough. It's pray and obey. But prayer is used as a tool of manipulation to attempt people, to, to get people to live according to Jeff's view of how their religion should be carried out. Rules like every man is required to marry at least three women in order to go to heaven. That's one of the tenets of the religion. They would come together and sit in what they call church on Sunday morning, an auditorium that seats several thousand people, and at times would be forced to sit in silence for up to two hours, total silence, children, adults, everybody, until Jeff's felt like their faith was strong enough for him to begin to prophesy. Even after he went to prison, this would happen over the telephone. Incredible religious abuse. And part of this, as is typical of cults, part of this is that Jeff's forced people to practice extreme self-denial in order to become worthy in God's sight. And Jeff's is the one who would decide whether they were worthy or not. Now, here's why I say all of that. Sadly, cults are as old as humanity. And sadly, perversions of the true gospel of Jesus are as old as Christianity. In recent weeks, we've been focusing on Paul's letter to the Colossians, where he, along with Timothy, wrote uh, in about 50 AD. And at least part of why Paul wrote this letter was because there were some people who had infiltrated this young Christian church in Colossae who were trying to promote self-made religious practices that were not in line with the good news of Jesus, which were in fact a perversion of the gospel and did not reflect what Jesus was, who he was, what he taught, and what his earliest followers practiced and taught. And Paul wanted to correct this and turn people's attention to the true gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, these infiltrators we've discussed at some length over the last couple of weeks were probably Jews, as most the, of the early Christians, of course, were Jews. It's not a, uh, anything negative about Judaism whatsoever. Christianity is a continue of, continuation of Judaism. Jesus was Jewish. All the apostles were Jewish. You, so, but so happens that in this particular religious cult, these infiltrators in this church were probably, as best as scholars can tell, Jews who believed Jesus was the Messiah, but didn't really fully comprehend who he was and had added some, some rules to the true gospel of Jesus, which included a determination in their own mind that Gentile believers, non-Jewish believers, had to keep the law in, of Moses or practice the, the rules of the Torah in order to be a part of God's covenant with the Jews. 
Added to this were aspects of Hellenistic philosophy and uh, the influence of a number of pagan exalt cults which were in Colossae. Their belief system was a mishmash of part Jesus, part Judaism, and part worldly philosophy. These Jewish Christian mystics, as they're sometimes called, believed that one needed to practice an extreme asceticism or extreme denial of the body in order to defeat the evil powers and to have mystical spiritual experiences where they would obtain spiritual wisdom and knowledge and understanding and spiritual power and have deep spiritual mysteries revealed. Scott McKnight, the scholar, called this group of people Torah-shaped transcendentalist. I kind of think that that probably captures it. Torah-shaped, in other words, they were focused on keeping the law of Moses, but they were transcendentalist in that they wanted to escape the body in order to enter a realm of spirit and have spiritual experiences. Someone else called them charismatic Jews. A focus on the law and the focus on this ecstatic, out-of-body spiritual experience. Well, Paul wrote to the Colossians, and this is Colossians chapter 2.23, and he called this belief system self-made religion. Another translation has it as self-imposed worship, and I particularly like the way the King James Version translates this as will worship. This is really important because this is what happens in self-made religions. People, by the exercise of their own will, attempt to earn the favor of God, attempt to have spiritual experiences that give them some kind of power, and they do it based in their own will. But Paul wrote to the believers in Colossae and told them that everything they needed and were trying to obtain through their will worship or self-made religious efforts was in fact found in Jesus. That Jesus was not one ingredient of some religious recipe, but that Jesus was the entire recipe. And Paul wrote that in Jesus, all the fullness of God lives, and that Jesus lives in those who believe in him and follow him. And he wrote that spiritual wisdom and knowledge and power and divine energy and everything else they were looking for could be found in Jesus and only in Jesus. And Paul further told the Colossians that when Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead, that he defeated the evil powers, and that when we believe in Jesus and are baptized and raised to new life, that we have victory over the powers of darkness, and we can live in this divine energy that comes through Christ alone. Now, part of what I just said as quickly as I could say it, because I have a lot to teach about today, is, is a broad, very broad, very broad overview of some of what we've already taught about, some of what's written in Colossians chapter 1 through Colossians chapter 2 verse 15, which we've dealt with over the last couple of weeks. 
I want to pick this up now at Colossians chapter 2.16 and read a section of Colossians, not as long as last week's section, but a section of Colossians that takes us through Colossians 3.11. I want to make some observations as I read the text so you can kind of get a flow of what's happening here. And then I'm going to come back and try to make some, uh, uh, some observations about this or do some teachings around three parts of this whole thing that I think might be important to all of us. Everybody doing okay? It's hard to tell behind the mask if you're frowning, smiling, gritting your teeth, gnashing your teeth. But I think I see interest and curiosity in your eyes and uh, a desire to learn. I'm going to do my best to teach well today. Okay, let's pick this up at Colossians chapter 2, verse 16. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you. I think I probably should say first that when you're trying to understand Scripture and you see the word therefore, you always ask the question, what is it there for? And the reason that the therefore is here in Colossians 2.16 is that Paul has just finished saying earlier in Colossians 2, when Christ died on the cross and entered death, he defeated death and he triumphed over the evil powers, which is a big theme in, in Colossians. And that when we are baptized, God works in us and gives us power over darkness that we should experience in our own lives. And so Paul essentially is saying, because of who Jesus is, because of where Jesus is, because of where you are, and because of who he is in you, do not let anyone judge you because you don't keep their religious rules by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. So now he's focused on the fact that these, uh, these mystics had this focus on the law of Moses, and they were causing division in the church because they were saying that Gentiles had to keep the law of Moses, including the males had to be circumcised in order for, that's a subject for another day, in order for them to be a part of God's covenant with the Jewish people, which is what Jesus brings us into. He says, the law of Moses is a shadow of the things to come, but it's fulfilled in Christ. So the teaching of Christianity and of Paul and other places is that Jesus kept the law and that when we believe in Jesus, we are counted to have kept the law and it's through our faith and obedience to Jesus that we keep that law of the Torah. And so he says then, now he's going to move into the more mystical part. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. So now he says, the, these people who through their own religious efforts are trying to seek after these mystical experiences where they can do things like, most translations would say it like this, worship with the angels. Don't let, don't let those people disqualify you by their spiritual pride that's cloaked in false humility. What happens when people go to an extreme that's not a Jesus-focused, true gospel, true grace understanding of Scripture? What happens when people go to an extreme of, 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 being, of harsh treatment of their body and the things, some other things will come up in the text? Is it in, in, when they think they have this spiritual, these spiritual spiritual experiences, they, these out-of-body kind of transcendental things, they inevitably become proud. 
and they want to tell you how spiritual they are. But what Paul's trying to say is these people really aren't spiritual. They have false humility, and don't let them judge you and make you feel like you're less than because you're not having these floating-on-the-clouds experiences. Such a person goes into great detail about what they have seen. They are puffed up with idle notions by their, and Paul makes a little fun of them, unspiritual mind. They have lost connection with the head, of course, Jesus, the head of the body, and their relationship with the rest of the church. Because Jesus is the head from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God calls it to grow. By the way, and I need to not get sidetracked because I'll go way too long today. Um, you know, my sermon grows by three or four minutes every service. I wish it weren't true, but it does. And the 1145 people, they're in for a couple hours. It's just how it is. But a lot of times these kinds of people who start getting into the extreme self-imposed religion, they, they, they not only become proud and, and want to be exalted in their spiritual experiences, but they also rarely are connected in a meaningful way to a local church where they're in meaningful relationship with other people and under the authority of a church. They get disconnected from the head. I've seen it, if I've seen it, it happened 2,000 years ago in Colossae, and I've seen it happen far too many times in, well, today, Colossae and today day. Since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, some people think elemental spiritual forces mean pagan philosophies. Some people think it means uh, the dark spiritual powers. I think elemental spiritual forces is referring to this effort that people will exert to try to get things from God that only are supposed to come through his grace. Since you died with Christ to your own efforts, why as though you still belong to the world do you submit to its rules. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules, which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use, are based on merely human commands and teachings. Some regulations indeed have, and this is the danger of this kind of thing, an appearance of wisdom. Oh, look how holy that person is. With their self-imposed worship or man-made religion or will worship, their false humility and their, we're going to come back to this, harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. He says this, their extreme asceticism now, which is part of, we don't know exactly what it looked like, but somehow part of their self-made religion was extreme denial of the body in order to overcome evil powers and restrain their own sensual indulgences. Paul says it doesn't work. We'll come back to that. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Now we come back to our theme over the last couple of weeks. We've been talking about indestructibility. We've been talking about Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7, where the writer to the Hebrews said, that Jesus is in the place he is in because of the power of his indestructible life. We've been talking about how through the resurrection that Jesus now uh, lives in heaven and we are counted to now live with him in heaven in our spiritual state and he now lives in us in earth. And Paul says, if you really want to have success, if you please, at the practice of the true gospel, keep your minds on who Jesus 
is, on where Jesus is, on the power he has, on the mystery that's been revealed that he lives in you. Keep your mind focused on Jesus and what he's accomplished. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, these earthly self-made religious practices they had, for you died with Christ, and your life is now hidden with Christ and God. Our position sitting in heavenly places with Christ is now hidden. Our eyes can't see it, but when Christ, who is your life, appears, then what's hidden will be revealed because you will also appear appear with him in glory. Now then, Because of who Jesus is and his defeat of death and because of who you are in him, verse 5, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. By the way, the wrath of God coming is an important part of our understanding of Scripture. You just need to think about this. If you care about justice... You need to understand that someday justice will be done in this planet and evil will be undone and good will be exalted. So someday he's going to make everything right. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourself of all such things as these. Now, in the earlier list of things, he talks about Uh, the sensual desires of the individual. Now he's going to move his attention to something we'll pick up in coming weeks. The, the, The sins people commit that bring division to the body because now he's very concerned about unity because these, these, these mystics, what they're preaching is bringing disunity to the body and excluding particularly Gentiles from the body. So he says, but now you also rid yourself of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other since you've taken off your old self with his practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the image of its creator. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. I'm planning to do two weeks on that verse right there. So That's the passage that I want to read. Now I want to pull back, and I want to spend the rest of my very limited time and talk about three truths that help us stay true to the true gospel. I want you to notice how hard I work to write that sentence with all the truths in there, okay? I hope that you appreciate the work that I do to get every little three truths that you don't, okay, okay, thank you. They're clapping. I hope you're clapping on your couch now, all right? Three truths that help us stay true to the true gospel. I'll spend most of my time with the first two. Here's the first one. We must truly understand God's grace. Notice how I got the word true in there again. We must truly understand God's grace. To help us come against this self-made religion with its rules and its harsh treatment of the body, we have to understand grace. And Paul sets us up for this in early in the letter in Colossians, Colossians chapter 1 verse 5, when he says, you have already heard the true message of the gospel. That's what I focused on last week. You have already heard the true message of the gospel that has come to you. The gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. 
Let's talk about grace for a few minutes and then move to the next point. First of all, all of us, I think, understand that grace is unmerited favor. The gospel and the life that it brings now and forever comes to us not through our initiative, but through God's initiative. It comes to us because of God's decision expressed through what Jesus has done for us. We don't deserve it. We can't earn it. It is not because we are good. It's not because we're holy. It's not because we're spiritual enough. It's not because we worship with the angels. It's not because we have these superior spiritual understandings. It's none of that. In fact, all that stuff messes the true gospel up. The gospel comes to us simply because God wanted it to. It's a decision that he made. We didn't earn it. We can't earn it. It is unmerited. When we try to earn it, we mess it up. Okay? This understanding of true grace must be, again, juxtaposed with self-imposed religion or will worship. We cannot, by an act of our will, receive the life he gives, nor live the life he dreams for us. I love Frederick Dale Bruner's translation of John. And here's how he translates a a little section in John chapter 1, where he's introducing Jesus to the world. He says, whoever did welcome him, to them he gave the privilege of becoming the children of God. Now, how do we become children of God? It's to those who are simply believing his person. In other words, it's through faith. They were born children of God, not by a confluence of bloods, biologically, nor by the willpower of the flesh, psychologically, nor by the willpower of a strong person, spiritually, but by the sole power of God alone. Guys, this is why God gets all the credit He gets all the praise. He gets all the glory. This is why if we're proud, we're proud of him. When you get away from the true gospel, you become proud of yourself. How holy I am, how much I pray, how much I I know. As soon as you start hearing that from somebody, just know that is a digression from the true gospel. Now, does it, we should have knowledge. We obviously should pray a lot. We, but it doesn't earn us anything. As soon as it's about us earning something, then we're saying Jesus shouldn't have died for us because we can do it ourselves, which is a big argument in Galatians, but I probably should just stay in Colossians today. However, now, now that God has initiated the salvation, We now are to respond to it by engaging our will. It's just important to know that he willed first. But now that he willed, now we have to engage our will so that what he willed can actually happen in our lives. So our will must engage with his will in order for us to be saved to the life he through grace willed us to have. Just remember, it wasn't your will first, it was his will first. And you'll be fine. I like to think of it like this. Receive, reciprocate, and rely. By receive, I mean God says, hey, I want to save you. Look, I sent Jesus. Look what he did. Believe in him. And we say, yes, I confess my faith in Jesus. We receive it. Then we reciprocate. There's a lot of new scholarship that's really uncovered how that, how that 
that acts of grace in the first century, in the context in which Scripture was written, were expected to be followed by reciprocation. In other words, if someone gave you a gift, there was an expectation that that though you received the gift and it appreciated the gift giver, that you would reciprocate in some way. And, and that's a whole interesting subject, uh, uh, some marvelous work being done on this, uh, on this. But the fact is that our response to this amazing thing God's done for us that we've received is to now say, okay, thank you. I know you, what you did for me I didn't earn, but now can I do something for you? What do you want me to do? How do you want me to live? I love you so much. Please, please, how can I get involved in what you're doing? You understand? We reciprocate. And then third, we rely, which is to say now, whatever it is he's telling us to do, we still don't do that in our own strength and power. We rely on him to help us every day. He lives in us, so we sit with him in heavenly places. See, we have access to all the beauties of his spirit spiritual power, and he lives in us, and now we expect his divine energy to flow through us and actually help us do the things he's called us to do. Now, I have a bunch of scriptures about the things I just said, but I'm going to leave the grace part there, and I'm going to move on to the second thing so I don't preach all day and mess up the next service, okay? Are you guys doing okay out here? Everybody all right? I guess you know what you get when you're coming to hear me, especially on a series like this, right? I'm gonna dig in, I'm gonna teach scripture. I, you know, I, I, I hope it's entertaining, but my purpose isn't to entertain. Uh, some people think I'm entertaining, they just think I'm funny. Not because I mean to be, they just think I'm funny. It's like, he's funny. But anyway, I, wanna, I want you to learn something that's gonna impact your life. Here's the second thing I would say. The true, three truths that help us stay true to the true gospel. Here's the second one. It's appreciating our bodies helps us understand true spirituality. I know that probably sounds out of left field. Let's see what you think in 10 minutes. Something that happens in most perversions of the gospel is there becomes a focus on, in Colossians, what's called the harsh treatment of the body. These mystics in in Colossae wanted to have out-of-their-body experiences. And to accomplish this, they were harsh to their bodies, thinking that somehow soul could be separated from body in a way where they could, like, worship with the angels, okay? We don't know exactly what, how they were harshly treating their body. That's all that it says, but it's a theme. It's this denial of the body in order to accentuate the spirit, which sounds like teaching I've heard in my lifetime where there is, and this is always the danger with messing up the true gospel, a seed of truth, or what Paul calls here, an appearance of wisdom, but if you're not careful, you'll get really messed up. All right? The mystics and Colossians misunderstood spirituality. They were practicing this harsh treatment of their bodies in order to achieve, again, heightened spirituality, to overcome the evil powers and their own sensual indulgences. In this regard, their desire was a good desire. 
Colossians 2.23, such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. Paul says it doesn't work. And the New King James Version, I think, captures it even better. These things that they're asking you to do have an appearance of wisdom and self-imposed religion, false humility, and neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. Notice here in this last sentence, he uses two words or two different words in the original language. He uses the word body and he uses the word flesh. Sometimes people will conflate these two things and it'll mess you up. When he mentions here that they're neglecting their body, he's talking about their body, which is enfleshed, but, but he's talking about their physicality. He's talking about their body. He says harsh treatment of the body will not help restrain the evil desires of the flesh. When he uses the word flesh there, he's not talking about what do you call this? The ep, epi, I don't remember. Seventh grade biology, whatever it was. He's not talking about the flesh. He's talking about, most translations will have it, the sinful nature. So in the, in the King James, when you read the word flesh, it's typically referring to what the New International Version will translate sinful nature which is the sinful nature, or again in the King James, the flesh, is that part of us that wants to operate independently from God, do our own thing, go our own way, okay? And, and, and the desires that we have to, 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 to experience pleasures out of, out of the bounds that God prescribed and so on and so forth. The flesh, the sinful nature. Paul says, be careful and know that harsh treatment of the body is not gonna keep you from having your sinful nature bring destruction in your life. See, for Paul, the body is good. This is as opposed to uh, Platonism, to Plato, who had so influenced the thinking of the day, Hellenistic thinking, that made had a dualism between body and soul or body and spirit. And where for Plato, I know I'm going somewhere you probably don't want to go, but this is part of what's how Hellenistic philosophy got wrapped up here. And Neoplatonism has influenced Christianity a lot over 2,000 years, but there's a coming back to a true understanding of what's going on here. Paul's saying Plato's wrong, essentially, who 400 years earlier had been writing about the good things can only be found in the world of spirit, Paul is now going to locate the fact that the good things, even things of the spirit, can be experienced in our bodies. Okay? So Paul goes out of his way in Colossians to emphasize that Jesus lives in a body and that his body was used by God to bring redemption and life. Colossians 1.15, Paul said, the Son is the image of the invisible God. Colossians 1.22, Paul said, he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body. Colossians 2.9 really nails the whole thing. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. It's not that it lived in bodily form for 33 and a half years. It's that Jesus is living now in his body. 
I say that because we have to be careful to not attempt to disconnect our bodies from spirituality. Dallas Willard, who I think has done amazing work around this, the, the great uh, University of Southern California, former chair of their philosophy department, one of the great theologian and Christian thinkers of the last century, he wrote in his classic, and this, is, this would be in the top 10 Christian classics on pretty much anybody's list over the last 100 years. He wrote in his classic, The Spirit of Disciplines, this. He said, it is all too easy to believe that the spiritual life may be a life opposed to the body or even at its best, a totally disembodied mode of existence. Volumes could be written on the harm done to human personality and to the practice of Christianity by the repressionist view of spirituality. The repressionist view would be to say, the body's bad, the body's bad, the body's bad, the body's bad, the soul, the spirit's good, 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 good. Don't like, the body's bad. I was raised like that, frankly. The body's bad, the body's bad. The spiritual and the bodily are by no means, Willard writes, opposed in human life. They are complementary. It is the spiritual life alone that makes possible fulfillment of bodily existence and thence human existence. How does this fulfillment take place? It comes through interaction of our powers as bodily beings with God and his kingdom, an interaction for which our bodies were specifically designed. In other words, our bodies were designed to house the divine. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 6.13. I'm going to use a lot of scripture here. The body is for the Lord and the Lord for the body. So let me come back to this. It's important. Jesus lives in a body now. Colossians chapter 2, verse 9, again, for in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. Wayne Grudem in his, in his systematic theology work wrote that Jesus was fully God and fully man in one person and will be so forever. Jesus is fully God and fully man in a body, and that is what he will be forever. The writer to the Hebrews said that when Christ came into the world, he said, a body you prepared for me. So remember, the last couple of weeks, if you've been tracking the last couple of weeks, I've been focused on several things. Hopefully, it, somehow this... All the stuff I'm saying will make sense to you in a common theme, but I've, you know, I was on my study intensive too long, so I've been thinking about too many things. But I've been talking about how in John chapter 1, Jesus was the Word who was with God and was God in the beginning. He was the divine energy that caused the world. And I've been talking about how that's the same energy that raised Christ from the dead and so on and so forth. But remember this. It's really important. John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John 1, 14 tells us, the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Us. So we all understand the incarnation, or we all know about it, that, that God became flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. But what we sometimes miss is that when he resurrected from the dead, he resurrected into that body, that same body. 
Though the body was now glorified, it was the same body, but different or better, if you please, which is going to give some of us hope for the resurrection of the dead. The same body, but better. I'll take that. So why, how do you know it was the same body? Well, they saw his nail-scarred hands. They, he still had nail scars in his hands, right? So it was the same body. How do you know it was glorified? Because it, it, he wasn't restricted to time and space, for instance. But he was still in his body. The gospel writers go to great lengths to let us know that he ate food with his disciples. It appears that he still eats food. I mean, I, I don't know that for sure, but I do know that he sat at the Last Supper. It appears that he would. He's in a body. He sat at the Last Supper and he held up a glass of wine. I hope that doesn't offend you, but that's what Jesus did. And he said, we're going to drink, we're going to have a meal together again in the coming kingdom. Right? You can look it up. I don't have time to go to all the scriptures now. Trust me. It's there. You're saying, what? Jesus? Yeah. He said, we're going to have a meal together. I'm just saying that Jesus, the Son of God, was incarnated in a body. The body died he re-entered the body. It was resurrected. He lives in that glorified body now. And while he was here, his divine energy was mediated through his body. People touched his body and felt power come out. He felt power leave his body. Uh, so the reason I say all that is then to come back to the point, which is God lives in our bodies, not all of God. We don't have the fullness of the deity, but what Paul says in Colossians is that in him all the fullness of the deity lives bodily, and you have been brought to fullness. Out of God, who God is, there's enough of him to share the essence of who he is, his very spirit with all of us. He lives in our bodies. Our bodies are good, and we're going to live in our bodies forever. Look, Romans chapter 8, verse 11, the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you. He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that our mortal bodies at the resurrection of the dead, at the second coming of Jesus, are going to take on immortality, but they're still going to be these bodies, and we're going to live forever in our bodies, in the new heaven and earth, with the embodied Jesus. We're going to see him, we're going to talk to him, we're going to touch him, we're going to have meals with him. Say, why is it, well, here, Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, verse 20, Jesus Christ, by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. So here's the deal. When you think spirituality, don't think disembodied. Don't think body's bad, spirit's good, be bad to the body. Seek for this mystical thing that's somehow out of the body. And the classic Meister Eckhart, um, a priest once said to Meister Eckhart, I wish that your soul were in my body, to which he replied, you would really be foolish. That would get you nowhere. It would accomplish you as little for your soul to be in my body. No soul can really do anything except through the body to which it is attached. 
Dallas Willard said, we do not have any knowledge or experience that is totally free from involvement with our bodies. See, we are not transcendentalists trying to escape our bodies. We are not ascetics who are harshly treating our bodies. We are Christians who believe that God lives in our bodies and uses our bodies and allows us to experience him in our bodies. By the way, while we were standing here singing that song of worship, a little earlier, I, I, I know that I powerfully felt his presence. How many of you don't, you don't, please don't say you did if you didn't. How many of you would say, while we were standing here singing, you felt God's presence in, where did you feel his presence? You felt his presence, it, that feeling was located in your body. So here are three responses to that and I'm finished. First of all, care for your body. When you think about the fact this is the body you're going to live in forever, it should change your theology about caring for your body. 1 Corinthians 6.19 says your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. Secondly, enjoy life in your body. Remember when Jesus was here on this planet, he enjoyed life. He said of himself, Matthew eleven nineteen. he said that he came eating and drinking, or one translation said he came enjoying life. See, we were made to experience pleasure. We were made to experience pleasure. Experiencing pleasure is not bad. Experiencing pleasure is not unspiritual. Experiencing pleasure is good. But the pleasure we experience must be experienced in the way that God designed it to be experienced in order for it to be guiltless pleasure and in order for it not to be pleasure that goes out of bounds and becomes destructive. So Paul is telling these people not to harshly treat their body but, he, but he's, uh, and, and that it doesn't work to overcome sensual indulgences. But then he turns around to those believers and says, but because of who you are in Christ and who Christ is in you, you should expect that you're going to defeat things like sexual immorality. The distinction is always so important in the teaching of Scripture. Is sex bad? No. Sex is good. In fact, I don't talk about sex publicly very often. It embarrasses me. I'm from the old school. But I'll just say in the presence of my beautiful wife, sex is wonderful. All right? Pastor. That which God created, if it's used in the way God designed it, which is in the confines of marriage, is wonderful. When it goes outside of the bounds of what God designed, pleasure becomes, well, ultimately destructive. The same could be true of eating and drinking, eating and drinking, having a wonderful meal is a wonderful thing. But if it becomes gluttony and or if to you drinking means uh, alcohol, uh, 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 if it becomes drunkenness, gluttonous or drunkenness, then the good thing, eating and drinking, becomes a bad thing. But having said that, let me then come back to this focus. Enjoy the good pleasures that a good God made in your body. In fact, I would say, I wish I, I might do a series on this now that I'm studying it. It is possible that the less we enjoy God-ordained pleasure, the more we will be tempted with destructive pleasure. Followers of Jesus, do you see the damage that these teachers were doing in Colossians? They're saying to these people, essentially, keep all these rules, harshly treat your body, don't have any fun 
which is part of what Warren Jeffs in, 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 uh, in, in this cult I described earlier, he had like a five-year moratorium on fun. It's a whole other story. But this is typical of people like this. It's like fun is bad. No, fun is good. Followers of Jesus should have more fun than anybody in the world, okay? All right? I forget what else I was gonna say about that. And here's the third thing. Discipline your body. Now, this may sound paradoxical. I just said, enjoy the pleasures of your body, but now I'm also gonna turn around and I'm gonna say, discipline your body. And I'm talking specifically about practicing spiritual disciplines. There's a difference between practicing a body-denying asceticism in order for you to earn God's favor or to have spiritual power. There's a difference between that and practicing spiritual disciplines like prayer and fasting and scripture reading and church attendance and giving and a small group community, and those are spiritual disciplines. Because spiritual disciplines, and forgive me for saying this probably for the thousandth time in the last now almost three decades, but spiritual disciplines are a means of grace. It's one thing to deny the body, to try to earn the favor of God so you can brag about how holy you are and the spiritual experiences you have. It's another thing to let's say fast, which actually isn't, if done properly, a harsh treatment of the body, but is actually good for the body. But to fast in order to remind your body it's not in charge, in order that God can will things, do things in your life that he wants to do and only he can do. So it becomes a not earning something, but it becomes a something where God can bring more grace into your life. All right, here's my third truth that will help us stay true to the true gospel. It's now that you have received his grace and now that he lives in your body, live. To which I would say, don't focus on don't do this and don't do that, but focus on the life you have in Jesus and live.